9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am pleased to be joined today uh, by my usual Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman of Just Security and NYU Law School, and by our friend, uh, Barbara McQuaid, a former U.S. attorney who is a professor at University of Michigan uh, Law School. Um, and uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks, Thanks David. Uh, you know, uh, Ryan, when we started doing this, we thought, you know, we could devote an episode each Thursday to cover impeachment and legal issues, and that would be plenty of time. And with every subsequent week, it seems like it's not sufficient. Um, <laughs> there, there, there are so many issues and, and, and questions. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do was to explore with um, uh, with you and Barbara a little bit, the, the, the piece that, uh, was done in just security on, uh, sort of hypothetical indictment of Rudy Giuliani. And I think we'll get to that at the end, but there's been so much intervening news, uh, that I thought maybe we should just sort of catch up on where we are this week. Uh, if that's okay with you guys. Sounds good. Uh, so, uh, the House uh, today voted on straight party lines virtually um, to proceed with uh, an impeachment inquiry uh, 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 of the president. Uh, this was done, I think, to add credibility to some of their uh, subpoena requests, but it also seems to set a clock. And I hear a lot of people talking about, well, you'll have articles of impeachment by uh, Christmas. Um, meanwhile, however, uh, a court in Washington um, uh, uh, made uh, uh, an announcement with regard to the case of uh, John Bolton's deputy, who has the same lawyer as John Bolton, um, uh, and who has said that you know he he wants the court to rule on on whether the the Congress has the power to compel him to testify. And it now appears that the judge will not even hear arguments in that case until uh, December 10th. Uh, so I guess I'd like to turn to each of you. I'll start with you, Barb, and, and then go to you, Ryan, and, and, and ask, what do you think the developments of today, both of these and any others you may think of, mean in terms of the timeline and the, 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 the track we're on with regard to impeachment? I think President Trump's strategy throughout all of this is to slow walk the process as much as possible. If he can get past the election or maybe even close enough to the election, he might be in a position to say there should be no impeachment. Let the voters decide whether they think I'm fit to continue in office. So I think that's been part of his strategy. And you now the courts move slowly. Um, a hearing in December by normal standards is actually pretty quick. Um, probably not as quick as House Democrats would like. Um, I think we'll still see people honoring subpoenas as we have with State Department officials, but I think this gives uh, 
Trump and the White House cover to say you should wait at least until we get this decision in December and could really slow things down now for what is that's, uh, you know, six weeks from now. Well, and, you know, Ryan, it seems to me that, you know, this is just one element of this slow walk strategy, right? There have been lots of other instances where in other investigations, the administration has said, no, we won't hand over tax returns. No, we won't uh, have hand over other kinds of information. Simultaneously today, there was a a hearing on, on whether or not uh, uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn, uh, McGahn could be um, uh, uh, compelled to testify and how far presidential um, prerogatives extend in that regard. Um, the, the, what, what Barb is talking about there seems you know, pretty likely. It seems likely that we'll push this more and more into 2020 and um, there'll, be, there'll be some Democrats who are worried it's going to distract from the message of the campaign. Uh, and Mitch McConnell will start to reiterate his, uh, you know, his doctrine with regard to uh, Supreme Court uh, he, you know, um, uh, decisions, you know, and say, oh, well, not in an election year. We'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens after the election. Uh, do you think that can work? So um, I think that the Democrats might be able to make a very strong case that they have ample information to move forward. They don't need to hear from um, Cooperman and uh, the evidence is sufficient and that Cooperman is part of the strategy uh, that is to hamper their investigation. They're not going to let that occur. And I think there are two other um, kind of potential wild cards here, which is first that the resolution that was passed today incorporates the House Judiciary Committee procedures and the House, the new House Judiciary Committee procedures say, look, if the White House engages in forms of obstruction, then they're going to lose some of their um, procedural protections, like the ability to cross-examine witnesses or something like that. So they now have an additional deterrent or threat or punishment that they can hang over the White House, and that could apply to Cooperman. So Cooperman is in court in part because he says he's caught between the White House and the Congress, so the White House could release him from that uh, situation. So that I think that's one piece of it. And then the second piece of it is just to kind of keep our eye on John Bolton, who is Cooperman's boss. Now, they do both have the same legal counsel, as in the exact same attorney uh, representing them, so one would think that they're kind of going into this in a very similar way. Uh, but at least as from what I know of the most recent reporting, and the two of you might be able to correct me, but the House has now issued a subpoena for Bolton to appear next week, November 7th, and the lawyer for Bolton slash Cooperman, but for Bolton said, no, we will not, sorry, they did not, sorry, they did not issue a subpoena, they issued a, um, a letter requesting him to appear, and he said, no, we will not appear voluntarily, but my client awaits your subpoena, and I think that might be a signal that if they then send a subpoena, he will come like these other current and former uh, officials uh, only once a subpoena has been issued. Um, but that would be very different, and it would be kind of strange that he's doing it and Cooperman's not, but they're two different human beings, different individuals. Maybe that's the calculation. So we might, if we hear from Bolton, that would be um, ample uh, and sufficient, and nobody would necessarily feel like you also have to hear from Cooperman as well. 
So, um, Barb, you know, as we as we look at this from another perspective, there's been more testimony this week uh, with regard to the behavior of the president and close advisors to the president uh, in seeking to uh, incent Ukraine to do an investigation into um, uh, uh, the Bidens and their activities in 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 that country, as well as into the 2016 uh, 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 theory of, of Ukrainian involvement in in, in the election hack. Um, and in in one case, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman uh, earlier this week um, made a very strong, direct uh, case of a of, of a of a essentially an unimpeachable source saying, you know, this is what happened. I was concerned. I immediately went and and uh, raised it with uh, legal counsel um, because I felt that lines had been crossed. Uh, I think his case is somewhat strengthened perhaps by the fact that his identical twin brother uh, is a White House ethics lawyer, um, also also military officer. Um, uh, and, so, you know, there has been reporting that the response of the White House lawyer was, oh, my gosh, let's classify this document in the top secret, you know, compartment that we're putting a bunch of this stuff so that nobody, you know, finds out that the line was crossed, which seems to be a misuse of classification authority. And then today there was testimony by um, an aide, uh, former NSC aide, uh, to John Bolton to the effect that uh what Vindman, what Sondland, what Fiona Hill, what uh, Ambassador Bill Taylor had said about these exchanges was true. Now, this guy Morrison, who testified today, said he didn't think anything illegal went on. Uh, but of course, he's not a lawyer. And frankly, he's incented to say that because if something illegal went on and he recognized it as illegal and he didn't do anything about it, he might have some liability. Um, but you know, this goes to Ryan's point that there's a lot of evidence, in un, undisputed evidence, of what went on, and so you know, at what point does that become sufficient evidence? Does it require big name testimony? Does it require Giuliani and more information on Giuliani and Giuliani and and his and his kind of um, associates in in this? Um, how much is enough, Barb? This is a question prosecutors wrestle with all the time. Uh, you know, they, there's a desire to continue to gather evidence, but at some point you have to cut it off and say we're done. And I think when you're dealing with impeachment, which has a political component to it, if you wait too long and you lose momentum and you get too close to the election, I think you might lose your opportunity. But I don't think they're there quite yet. If I were running this investigation, I'd want to get a little more evidence about what was going on in Ukraine with Giuliani, because I think if it's just the phone call with President Trump, uh, it can be easily dismissed as, well, there's Trump being Trump and not being very careful, and he probably shouldn't have said these words out loud, but, you know, he's not a lawyer, he's not careful, and he, he let that slip. But if instead you can get this parade of State Department officials that we've already seen who are talking about not only the call, but about this shadow operation that Rudy Giuliani was running, that this was a deliberate plan that took place and played out over a series of months and a series of meetings, then I think you can show that this wasn't just a slip of the tongue. This was a strategy designed to withhold military aid, 
in exchange for a thing of value relating to election interference. And there's two problems with that. One is just the uh, inviting foreign interference into an election. And then there's the uh, abuse of power or bribery of withholding the military aid in exchange for it. Either one of those things, I think, is impeachable. And then perhaps the uh, obstruction along the way to try to conceal all of that. So I think uh, there's there needs to be some urgency with this, but I would want to develop uh, the plan that Giuliani was involved in in a series of meetings and not just let the phone call stand alone. Okay, so let's let's just break this down into component parts because there's there's the case against Giuliani. Um, there's the case that we sort of have had laid out in in front of us. There's the the issues of the process. Um, and 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 I'd like to talk about each one of them in a little bit more depth. And so let me start, Ryan, with this. the 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 response of the Republicans at first was, um, nothing to see here. And, you know, here is what Trump calls the transcript. It's not a transcript. It says it's not a transcript, a summary of a call, but that's pretty damning. Um, and, and, you know, Mick Mulvaney then went ahead and said, well, you know, there was a quid pro quo. That's just the way things are done. And increasingly, it seems like the argument that the Trump administration is going to make and the Republican Party is going to make is, Sure, the president did this. The president can do this. He's the president. He is given the power to conduct foreign policy. And if he thinks that it's in the national interest to pursue corruption uh, in Ukraine in this way and to use the leverage that we've got of, 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 of you know, funds that have been appropriated in order to get Ukraine to behave in a way that's you know, uh, less corrupt, then that's in the U.S. national interest. And, and if you want to have an argument um, about, you know, uh, you know, what's, you know, whether whether that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, that's fine. But there's no crime here. This is this is just a judgment call about what the president can do or, or cannot do. Um, now, Barb, just a moment ago, said it l- listed a couple of, you know, potential uh, crimes or violations here, and people have talked about, you know, campaign finance law violations. They've talked about, uh, uh, you know, laws that pertain to the disbursement of funds that have been appropriated by the Congress. Uh, they've talked about concepts like, you know, bribery as something specifically enumerated in the Constitution. But nobody's made the clear case that this is the thing the president did that violates the law. And, the, and it seems to me the Republicans are starting to gain traction with their argument that what he did was fine. How do you deal with that, Ryan? So I think one deals with it on two levels. One is to say the impeachment clause is not dependent upon violations of law or crimes. And it's a gross abuse of power um, which uh, the facts seem to lay out, including bribery, which is in the impeachment clause. And the gross abuse of power is no president should ever use their power of their office by doing something like holding military aid for zero national security purpose, except the only purpose is to um, assist them in their uh, political campaign against political opponents by trying to get a foreign government to interfere in our elections. I just think that's a third rail, no president should ever do that, and it's an abuse of power, and it's so grotesque in its behavior that it's one of those moments where you find out about it, you don't need to 
go to the statute books to see, well, under which provision and what elements of what crimes. So I think that's, that's just number one. And, and any impeachment expert scholar would say that. Um, that there's so many bad misdeeds that a uh, president could engage in that we haven't legislated for. <laughs> so, so I think that's, that's one, and nobody should lose sight of that. Um, and then the second is there are actually a host of not just federal law violations, but crimes that that fits under. And I, I'll just reference them generally, but Barb is uh, more the expert on this. And in fact, the piece that she did for Just Security with Joyce Vance is getting at it because it lists two of the crimes um, that Giuliani was involved in and their conspiracies. And then Barb and Joyce note that one of the co-conspirators is individual one, which is the president of the United States. So those two crimes are the conspiracy to defraud the United States through engaging in um, an end run around the Federal Election Commission and trying to, which tries to eliminate any foreign national, for example, assisting a campaign with a thing of value. So that's one part of it. Second part is bribery. The President of the United States was leveraging um, an official act, uh, which is giving military assistance for his own personal benefit, uh, manufacturing dirt from Joe Biden. So we've got those two. Barb's also written about denial of honest services, which is a political corruption crime. That applies. Um, others think, you know, that the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is you're not supposed to bribe a foreign official, <laughs> applies. So in some ways, it's um, a surplus of federal criminal law that applies to this action. And um, and so I do think that there's an important part of our discourse that many people will think, um, because Lindsey Graham is playing on it, like, well, if there's not a crime, then I don't think you, you can impeach a president. But he's but there is a crime here, and you actually don't need a crime to impeach a president. And also even the discourse that says nobody's above the law. So it gets complicated if you say, well, there's no federal law that he violated, but he violated the Constitution. So I do think it is important to hit both registers, um, constitutional violation, abuse of power, and uh, lo and behold, multiple federal offenses. So, Barbara, I'd like your take on this as well. You know, the metric for this is not you know, a judicial judgment as to the letter and the spirit of the law and whether or not it has been um, violated in the eyes of reasonable people. Uh, the metric here is whether or not sufficient number of Americans believe that something was wrong, that the Republicans either start to conclude that it's not in their interest to defend the president any longer because they're going to lose their jobs, or Alternatively, a sufficient number of Americans think that it was wrong that even if the Senate doesn't act in a responsible way here, um, that the, the president is is voted out. And I think the counterargument to every smart thing that Ryan just said uh, that you'd hear from the Republicans is, well, every single Republican is going to say, uh, that's all very well and good. Where's the crime? We don't see the crime. We think this was in the president's prerogative. You have your opinion. We have our opinion. We're going to stick to our opinion. We're going to reject this in the Senate. And you're going to walk out the door with a national debate about, uh, you know, with Democrats saying the president did something wrong and Republicans saying the president didn't do anything wrong, just like we did post Mueller report. And it's, you know, it's going to make people angry, but it's not actually going to produce a result. So how do, how do you avoid that being the case, Barb? I think that um, what you're suggesting is what would be the parallel in the criminal justice world would be jury nullification. That is, the case has been made 
but uh, the jury still isn't going to uh, decide to convict the defendant for whatever reason. You know, perhaps one could argue that that's what happened in the O.J. Simpson criminal case, that there was evidence of murder, and yet, um, for uh, whatever reasons, police misconduct, uh, history of police abuse uh, of African Americans, members of the jury just said, you know, we just don't want to go there. And so one of the things that I think uh, Democratic lawmakers have to keep in mind is they could make the best case in the world, but if public opinion isn't with them that this crime is impeachable, then the Senate is going to vote to acquit. Um, But I do think that if there is overwhelming public support that the conduct is so egregious as to be impeachable, then at some point, members of the Senate, you know, see which way the political winds are blowing and decide to follow the public in their own state and vote to impeach. And so um, whether it's uh, for love of country or love of self-preservation, I think at some point the political winds will tell them which way to go. Um, You know, in terms of proving an impeachable offense, I heard someone describe it this way, which I think was helpful um, to think of uh, criminal behavior and impeachable behavior as two overlapping circles. And so there's certainly some criminal conduct that's not impeachable. Uh, say President Trump was caught jaywalking. I think most would agree, even if the evidence was strong, that would not be sufficient for impeachment. Um, and then there's uh, an area that is um, impeachable, but not criminal. There could be some sort of abuse of power, for example, under the campaign finance laws, where you're not able to establish the element that campaign interference is a, quote, thing of value, because you have to be able to set a monetary value on that. So it may be that that's not criminal, but it's still an abuse of power and therefore impeachable. And then there's an area that's going to be in between um, where those circles overlap, that something is both criminal and impeachable. Bribery, for example, would clearly be on that list because it's even enumerated. Uh, so bribery uh, is specifically referenced in the impeachment clause of the Constitution. Um, and so I think you need to help the public understand, but just as in any criminal case, you're not going to win and persuade the jury that they ought to pull the trigger and convict, even if you prove technical uh, satisfaction of each and every element, unless they believe that there's some wrong that has occurred here that needs to be remedied. And when the remedy is something as extreme and dramatic as impeachment, I think you have to convince the public that this was really bad. Um, I think that case can be made. Um, If you look at what some of these uh, State Department officials have been saying in recent weeks, even in their opening statements, and of course we haven't seen the transcript of their testimony, which has gone eight to 10 hours in many of these instances, and we'll see whether they hold up or whether it gets even stronger. But they have talked about how this shadow diplomacy that Rudy Giuliani was running was contrary to the long-term interests of the United States in terms of our national security, the ability to help Ukraine fight off Russian aggression, uh, and that the reason for the almost $400 million in military aid. And so I think to make the case, you need to show not just that the president committed some technical violation of campaign finance laws, but that he was putting his own interests ahead of the country's when he was withholding that military aid. And I think that's the case that needs to be made to show how this president is harming national security to advance his own interests that coincidentally advance the interests of Russia. Uh, yeah, coincidentally. Um, well, that gets In into course. a broader... Yeah, right, exactly. But that gets into a bigger issue. Um, 
which we've talked about before on our podcast, which is how broadly you define this case. But for the moment, let's stick with the Ukraine case. Uh, you know, when Richard Nixon was impeached, um, you know, we saw a lot of a lot of elements of this particular case. But one thing that undid Nixon, and this goes to the point that that Barb was just making, was that the momentum started to mount against him. It was not just the momentum of the case, but there were special prosecutors and there were um, members of the White House staff that were getting indicted. The vice president of the United States had to step down um, prior to all of this um, happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it created this sense that this was a really corrupt president and that he was going down one way or another. Well, so far we don't, we don't, you know, we had Mueller and Mueller came up kind of a dud. And in fact, I think Mueller is at the moment working against the sense of momentum in the eyes of Republicans because Mueller didn't come up with the quote smoking gun in terms of collusion. And the Democrats have made a decision for better or for worse, and I think it's for much, much worse, of not pursuing the obstruction case as you know an urgent matter. They have not. They they said we're not going to go after this right away um, for political calculus, and I I think that was wrong. But there, you know, Bill Bill Barr's Department of Justice is not going after lots of members of the Trump administration. It's very hard um, to see how that is likely to happen, uh, with one exception. And that is the case of Rudy Giuliani. Um, we've heard uh, recently that the uh, State Department is going to turn over documents, communications with Giuliani. It's very clear that Bolton testimony is not going to be pro-Giuliani testimony. <laughs> um, and it looks like, you know, the, the, the stars are aligning that if the jury nullification approach doesn't work, um, and 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 they have to feed somebody to the sharks. Um, there are a number of people who'd be just as happy feeding Rudy Giuliani to the sharks, and that might in turn create this sense of momentum. Certainly, what Giuliani was doing was sleazy. It seems like Ukraine was not the only place he was doing it. The guys he was working with were kind of like from a you know a D, a D level gangster flick. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it looks like there is some promise for that case to be the thing that says, nope, this was gross and you can't dress this up as foreign policy if it's made well. Um, do you think that's true, Ryan? Do you think that's where we're going to go with this thing? And, 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 and maybe what can we glean from the, the, the piece that Joyce and Barb did for you that suggests that this is a way not only to go, but that things will go. So it does look like Giuliani has a great deal of criminal exposure um, being involved with these uh, two individuals already been indicted, four individuals uh, that have been indicted, but Parnas and Furman in particular, because we know Parnas and Furman were deeply involved with Giuliani in the effort to um, work with the prosecutor generals in Ukraine to manufacture dirt on Joe Biden. So um, now they weren't indicted for that reason. Um, so that's also notable. Um, but uh, one of the reasons they were indicted was working on behalf of one of those prosecutor generals to oust the U uh, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And 
Giuliani worked with Parnas and Fruman to oust the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and Giuliani apparently, by his own admission, um, submitted this dossier to the White House, sent over to the State Department in order to lobby um, them to remove the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. So that's um, a lot of criminal exposure. That's including the uh, being an unregistered foreign agent um, for the foreign power um, in Ukraine. And so I think that's a part of it. And uh, part of this is under the rubric of the SDNY, so they have a greater autonomy and one might think that um, there could be forward momentum, but of course uh, it does seem as though the SDNY might not be operating with its traditional level of independence from Maine justice, and that's potentially evident in the hush money payments investigation, which seemed to abruptly close um, without going forward, even in the situation where it seemed as though it implicated uh, the president himself, and that might be some speculate because of Bill Barr. So kind of who knows um, in a certain sense in that space, but we do know that Rudolph Giuliani is under criminal investigation right now. So I do think that that might happen. And just to say one other thing, just as a footnote um, to what you had said, David, is we are in the midst of a series of resignations of high-profile senior officials in the Trump administration in the wake of the impeachment inquiry. So Paul Volcker, Rick Perry, Tim Morrison today, who just testified, um, so and, and others. Uh, so I think that does also give the public a sense of something really rotten um, has happened uh, at the top. Barb, you, you, you did this uh, uh, Hypothetical indictment and 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 have followed the the, the Giuliani case. Um, so the question is, sorry that I hear ringing noises, but um, the, the 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 question is, um, how do you think that is going to progress? Do you think it's going to progress? If Bill Barr doesn't push this, will it progress? Can it progress without? Uh, an independent Department of Justice acting as it normally would? I don't know. You know, um, the uh, mock indictment was Ryan's idea, and Joyce Vance and I put it together. And to me, it's a strong case already just based on that which is in the public domain, this conspiracy to defraud the United States and the fair administration of elections, conspiracy to commit bribery, and contempt of Congress, I think could be charged today. But of course, Prosecutors make a decision, not only can we charge based on admissible evidence, but should we charge based on a substantial federal interest and in light of all of the factors that they consider about whether it is in the best interest of justice to do that. I think in normal circumstances, he would be charged with this crime based on all these things that we're hearing about shadow diplomacy and how it's harming the national security of the United States. So not only the can can he be charged question, but should he be charged question would be answered in the affirmative. But the real wild card here is William Barr. And as Ryan said earlier, you know, even in a a very independent U.S. attorney's office like the Southern District of New York, in this one, we assumed it would be the District of Columbia that would have venue over Giuliani's activity in in this case. Um, the, the, The attorney general, William Barr, is still the boss of all of those offices, and they are not going to be permitted to bring some rogue indictment, even if they think that they can and should do that under the law in the best interest of justice. And so um, 
you know, when you get a, a significant case, you're required to report it up to Maine Justice. Uh, if if the deputy attorney general asks for a briefing to share information with him or her um, so that they can be involved in decision making. Most of the time, they're hands off and let you do what you want to do. But there are times when they get very much involved. I remember some cases I was involved in where people in the attorney general's office told me that there are certain cases that the attorney general owns because of the national importance, the need to coordinate among districts. Um, most of the time, he doesn't have the time or inclination to do that. But with a handful of very important cases, he owns them. And I would think that anything involving the president's lawyer, Giuliani, is appropriately owned by the attorney general. Um, but this attorney general, I think, um, has demonstrated uh, that he has a tendency to act in the best interest of the president himself personally, as opposed to the best interest of the country uh, to whom he is supposed to you know, give his loyalty. And so I worry about whether charges would actually be brought against Rudy Giuliani or others who were involved in this. Yeah, I, I have to say I worry about it a lot because I think there's been a calculus made on the part of the Republicans that um, that if Barr plays the game the way he's playing it uh, and McConnell maintains control of the Senate, uh, that Barr is beyond the reach of the Democrats um, in the House or the Senate, uh, and he can protect the president from further prosecution. And should the president lose the election, at which point one could imagine uh, prosecution of a variety of these things, uh, that in all likelihood that will then be characterized as po political prosecution of political enemies or po prosecution of enemies for political reasons, um, and that the Democrats will actually shy away from it and that they will get away with all of this. And of course, if Trump is reelected uh, and maintains control of the Senate, uh, then we'll continue in this state for five years and not, and, and not one year. Um, Ryan, do, I mean, do you share that concern? And do you think there's an antidote other than the Democrats kind of doing what they're doing? Um. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think that they're, the Democrats doing what they're doing is the, tr the, the one best track out of that scenario um, in the sense that they build the strongest case that they can for impeachment. They present it to the public. And if the public... Um, we'd previously been talking about if the public is not there with the Democrats, but in fact, if the public is there on impeachment, which so much of the, so much of the polling is there now, but if it's at actually even greater level, then maybe the, some senators do the right thing. So that's one scenario. Another scenario is that indeed the, they build the case and then the public decides uh, in November 2020 based on the case that's being brought uh, by the House and the president is impeached by the House and they decide uh, whether or not they want to throw him out um, on the in part on the basis of the case. Uh, there are there are other, um, obviously multiple other factors, including uh, a laundry list. Um, so I think that that's I think that's right. Uh, I think that's what's happening. I do think there's some other strange wild cards in 2020. Um, so for example, if Cooperman and, and Bolton and McGahn uh, lose their cases, which they should, um, then do we actually, in the middle of 2020, revive um, some of these matters, like a 
keener focus on abuse of power and the star witness being the president's former White House counsel. Um, so I think that, you know, even though the Democrats at this point have basically left the Mueller report volume two behind, it might still reappear because after winning a Supreme Court case, for example, they get, they're going to walk away from the person that they've been fighting to get to a public hearing. Um, so that's another piece of it, I suppose. Well, I guess that does speak to what we've been calling here sort of the Larry Tribe solution, which is do the Ukraine case, but leave open the option of doing the other cases. And that, in fact, uh, if you get Don McGahn to um, testify and, and he's compelled to do so, uh, he's actually the linchpin in um, uh, most of the obstruction cases. And you would bring that up, and to the extent to which it was the obstruction was demonstrated, um, those cases are extremely uh, strong as well. Uh, do you have in mind? We have just a couple of two more minutes left here, Barb. Do you have in mind other strategies or things the Democrats um, uh, and and frankly anybody who's interested in the pursuit of justice um, can do here? Uh, beyond what what they're they're currently doing, or you know, at the end of the day, is this all going to be a kind of an echo of you know uh, Stalin scoffing about the influence of the Pope and saying, well, how many divisions does he have, and and the Republicans essentially saying, well, how many prosecutors do the Democrats in Congress have, um, you know that they you know they 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 can't actually make any of this stuff any more than a political matter? Yeah, I, it is a political matter, but I think one thing that they can do is um, have some of these witnesses testify publicly, and I think that could really change public sentiment. I think they've been a- approaching it the right way by first taking the depositions of all of these people behind closed doors. You know, eight to 10 hours is too much for the public appetite to watch, but what you do is, and, and the same thing that happens in a criminal prosecution, you investigate, put a bunch of witnesses in the grand jury and find out which ones are the strong ones, and those are the ones you call for trial. And then have people testify publicly uh, in the open, on television, so people can see them. And for the love of God, don't have members of Congress ask the questions, but have professional lawyers who are good at asking questions ask the questions in a compelling way so that we can get very quickly to what's most important about their testimony. Yeah, that I, I I couldn't agree more enthusiastically with the point. I think uh, it is a political matter, and as a consequence, uh, it requires um, being managed um, in a in a politically conscious way. And if this is going to be conducted on television, it needs to be both fact based and and seemingly fair, uh, and and actually fair. But it also needs to be done in a way where Nobody watching can walk away thinking that, you know, the abuse of power did not occur, um, that laws were not broken, um, because that will put pressure on the Senate, but it will also make the case that's essential to make in November, regardless of the outcome in the Senate. Uh, And in some ways, you know, there is an irony here. There is the reality show TV host uh, who became president, uh, whose fate in the end is going to come down to a television show, the investigation into the impeachment, um, and 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 it, it'll all depend on on how that plays and and whether or not you'll forgive me for going that far, he is fired. 
um, uh, as as his show once um, uh, played out. Anyway, uh, we'll come back to these things. Hopefully, um, uh, Barb will join us again at some point in the future. Every week, Ryan will join us again to make sense of all of this. Uh, uh, I know everybody is heading out now today. The day we're taping this is Halloween. Um, and I assume both of you are 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 dressing up as articles of impeachment or something. <laughs> I've seen good costumes as the whistleblower so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Ryan, are you? Uh, do you have a costume or? I am an abusive power. So. <laughs> you are going as an abusive power. Well, that's that's that is we have all seen is scary. I just want you to know that we didn't do this in the studios we normally do, and my office in my apartment overlooks Sixth Avenue, where the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade takes place. And the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade is not like anything most of you see. Um, uh, look, look it up on TV for pictures. But as of right now, I look out my window and there are 400 police officers directly <laughs> in front of my building. Uh, may, may Donald Trump have the same experience someday. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Barb. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And join us again sometime soon here on the DSR Network. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.